0: Grab a seat. My name is Mike. I'm one of the pastors on the team. And uh, I'll just go ahead and share. Uh, 1988 is when I graduated. And, uh, yeah, 80. Anybody else graduate in the 80s? Yeah? Best decade ever. Best movies, best music, best hairdos zippers. It's best, just best. You might want to grab your notes out of your handout. We are in week two as we're walking through the book of Philippians. We'll be in chapter two today. You might want to grab, if you have your Bible, grab your Bible, open it up to Philippians 2. We're just going to kind of walk through most of the verses. Again, I would remind you, we ask Everyone had overlake to start reading through the book of Philippians last week, so I hope you took that challenge. If not, still plenty of time to get in on that. And here's the reason why is there's so much depth to it. The Philippians is not a long book. It's just really, really rich. There's just too much to delve into. We can't do it all uh, in a Sunday morning series, so please uh, join us in this, uh, that you'd pick up the challenge read through the book kind of wrestle through it, mull over it digest it. it's a delicious meal that paul is serving and so we want to make sure that we all get a chance to to get into that now Today, as we jump into chapter two, you're going to see a theme, and the theme has to do with Paul's challenging the attitudes of the Philippians, and then by proxy, our attitudes uh, today. And, and so, let's just take a look. Attitude has to do with what we think that manifests itself in our behavior. Here's the actual definition. Attitude, there's the pronunciation. I thought I knew how to pronounce it until I saw this. Attitude, all right? That's how we say it. And it's a settled way of thinking or feeling about someone or something, typically one that is reflected in a person's behavior. So, how you think or feel and it's reflected in how you behave. So, it starts here, but it manifests itself in your life. There's a man named Viktor Frankl. And Viktor Frankl was a renowned doctor. He he just was this incredible, brilliant man whom the Nazis imprisoned in a concentration camp. They took away his livelihood, they confiscated his possessions, they mocked his dignity, and they killed his family. They locked him in a prison cell. But he found a door to escape that the guards knew nothing about. And this is what he wrote. Everything can be taken from a man but one thing, the last of the human freedoms. To choose one's attitude in any given set of circumstances, to choose one's own way. So choose his attitude, that was the last freedom that he had, and ultimately that became what propelled him through that horrific reality. He chose to set his attitude on hope. He chose to set his attitude on a powerful vision of his preferred future. And that attitude helped him survive the horrors of that concentration camp. When World War II was over, uh, Frankl went ahead and put his practice back together. He wrote a book called Man's Search for Meaning, and he wrote a dozen other books as well, literally inspiring millions and millions of lives. All with this challenge that no matter what the circumstances, no matter what's going on, no matter what another person can do to you or how oppression can happen, your attitude remains yours alone to choose. And it's interesting that now we're reading a book, Philippians, a letter written by a man in prison, Paul, a man who embodied choosing his own attitude and who challenges the church in Philippi to choose good attitude as well. And, and so the challenge is for us. So let's just jump right in. We'll start uh, chapter 2 verse 1 and it goes thus, Is there any encouragement from belonging to Christ? Any comfort from his love? any fellowship together in the Spirit? Are your hearts tender and compassionate? Then make me truly happy by agreeing wholeheartedly with each other, loving one another and working together with one mind. And purpose some of you as you're reading through in your own Bibles maybe you're reading through in the ESV or the NIV and that chapter actually starts with the word if in your translation if there is any encouragement if there's any comfort etc and uh, what's interesting is if you if you go into the context and the way the Greek language is written everything is defined by context actually Paul is not really asking those questions He is reminding them of the power of their faith. So the word if, it's really not a great translation. You could also translate it, and maybe even better so, with the word since. Since there is comfort in your faith, since there is encouragement, etc. These are a set of givens that Paul is reminding the Philippians about. He's saying, since you have encouragement from belonging to Christ, since you have comfort from his love, since you have fellowship together, since your hearts are tender and compassionate. So he's he's reminding them of the reality of their faith. Then he says, now here's my challenge. It's the first attitude check, and that is the challenge to unity. This is how you complete my joy if you would have unity together, if you you would have the attitude of like-mindedness, of oneness in purpose and in spirit, of, of oneness together in harmony and agreeing together. And then if you look at that last sort of line, that last phrase in the last line, it's not just agreeing, it's not just loving, it's also working together, working together with one mind and purpose we're talking a little bit in our creative team this week about how sometimes the church can be like a holy huddle. I don't know if you've heard that phrase before, holy huddle. Now I want to tell you there's nothing wrong with a huddle, nothing wrong with uh, holiness, nothing wrong with a holy huddle. But the, the reminder is that, uh, you know, football, I'm a football fan. I love football. God loves football. And in football they use a huddle. And, and they huddle together before each play and they come together in the huddle to agree on the plan. To become like-minded and in one purpose and accord and then they break the huddle and they go to the line of scrimmage and they they actually enact what they just discussed they enact the play that they just called in perfect unity in harmony and, and, and that's how the game of football is played. Nothing wrong with a holy huddle. Nothing wrong with gathering together. Nothing wrong with corporate singing, worship to the Lord, connecting with one another in fellowship. Nothing wrong with opening the word together and receiving the play. Okay, this is what we're going to do. But it's important to then break the huddle and then go out to the line of scrimmage of our lives and work together in unison out there. Does that make sense? So a holy huddle's fine as long as that's not the only place. I mean, that's a really boring football game if all they do is go in the huddle and then for 60 minutes they're just hanging out in the huddle. Not too much fun. That's called, you know, off-season. There's other jokes, but I can't think of them right now. It's You know, that's as exciting as watching, you know, golf. Uh, But... uh, what uh, what I want you to see is Paul's understanding of what the church is from the very beginning. It's not just coming together in, in agreement. It's not just being like-minded. It's actually working together. And you're going to see that theme uh, throughout this this chapter. I want to tell you that if you're not in unity, if you're in disunity, then there's division. And, and, and that's a problem. And you know Father's Day is coming up. And as Father's Day is coming up, I know sometimes, you know, kids and, and families are like, oh, what do we get dad for Father's Day? Oh, I don't know. He's got everything. He doesn't need anything. And maybe nose hair trippers, something like that. But I, here's the thing. Here's what dads really want. I'm just speaking personally. What dads really want is the whole family together and everybody getting along and nobody in division, right? No disunity around the table. No brother antagonizing brother or sister, Right, no arguing, because if that's all going on, and here's the, the, the truth, the bottom line truth is it doesn't matter how sharp the tie is. It doesn't matter how delicious the meal is. If you've got the infighting going on around the table, you might as well just pack it up and call it quits. What, what, what dad really wants is for the whole family to get along. That's what God wants, right? All of his children... Created in his image, he wants us to get along. And Paul has his father's hat on as he's writing this letter. And he's saying, as a spiritual father, I want all of my children in Philippi to get along, to agree together, to, to view one another in this unified fashion, and to work together in harmony. Okay. Now he continues, verse three Don't be selfish. Don't try to impress others. Be humble. Thinking of others as better than yourselves. Don't look out only for your own interests, but take an interest in others too. Friends, this is the concept of humility. It brings me to the second attitude check. The second attitude check is humility. And we're gonna have attitude checks along this whole uh, message. Uh, uh, This is like the theologian Ice Cube says, you better check yourself before you wreck yourself. We're gonna check ourselves along the way. And so this attitude check is humility. And and, and, and what he's saying as as he's on this passage, these couple of lines, he's telling us how we embrace humility. The, The first is that we're selfless. We're not selfish, but we're selfless. We're not trying to impress by puffing ourselves up, but rather we're humble, he says, thinking of others as better than yourself. Um, The NIV translates this, valuing others above yourself. The ESV says, counting others as more significant. But here's the point. you got to make sure you, you parse this out correctly, because he's not saying that you're not valuable. No, 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 no. You're of infinite value. But it's a choice we have to actually place the other at a higher value than we place ourselves doesn't mean you're not valuable. No, no, you've got great value, but you get a chance to reckon the value of the person that you're with, reckon their value higher, he says. And then he says, there's this thing about your interests. He never says, don't look to your own interests at all. He never says that taking care of your own needs is not at all important. That's not what he says. He's just saying, don't only do that. Right. You know, typically what happens without Jesus in the picture, just as you're living your life, typically we tend to get really, really selfish and self-centered and me centric. And it's about our needs and, and my needs and the needs of my family. And it's all about this. And what he's saying is, no, no, don't just look to your own interests. But, but look to their interests. You're of value, but count the other as more valuable, that there's space in our lives now because of this faith that we have in Jesus and this humility that we have because of him. And actually, that's where Paul then ties it, that next verse, in verse five, he's gonna tie it straight into the attitude of Jesus. And this is one of those powerful passages that we have looked at before, we'll look at it again. But it's this beautiful, beautiful passage starting in verse 6. And many scholars believe that what Paul is doing starting in verse 6 and the following verses is he's referring to the oldest Christ-centric hymn or creed in existence. This is, this is powerful Christological language. It's very elevated and exalted. You'll see. We're going to get into it in a minute. And what, what most scholars believe is that Paul, when he was in Philippi, and in some of these other churches that he was planting, he would teach them this creed. Maybe he would teach it as a song that they would sing, and, and you know that it's about 50 million times easier to memorize the lyrics to a song than it is to memorize a paragraph. And so he might have taught it in a song, but this is the oldest Christian hymn or song or creed in existence. and. The thought is Paul taught them when he was there with them. Now it's a few years later. Paul's in prison in Rome, and he's going to remind them of what he taught them earlier. So here's what I'd like to do. First service did this uh, so-so. I want to really challenge us to do this. I want us to read it together out loud. And I want us to read it together out loud because I want us to model in this moment the unity that Paul's talking about and I want to model the humility because it does require some humility to just kind of bravely voice these words and and, uh, to be humble. Not worrying about what other people around you are doing but let's just be unified and let's be humble as we read these words out loud together starting in verse 5. Are you guys ready? Here we go. You must have the same attitude God elevated him to the place of highest honor, and gave him the name above all other names. That at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue declare that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. Excellent, <laughs> you guys did better than the first serve. So, well done. Now, here's what I want to do. I want to now jump in, and let's go verse by verse. Remember, Paul's saying your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus. His challenge is humility. Our attitude should be like Jesus' attitude. And then he goes in and he starts talking about how humble Jesus really was. And so the first thing he says is, is he did not he, he did not think of equality of, with God as something to cling to. You know, he was co-equal with God. Existing eternally, Father, Son, and Spirit, this beautiful triune relationship communion, all of the privileges, all of the honor, all of the glory in all of the universe is his, and he was willing to set it all aside. He did not cling to it. He did not grasp at it. He he was humble enough to set that aside. And friends, I don't think this side of eternity we will ever understand at all how incredible that sacrifice was for us. To to step away from all of the glory, from that intimate communion with the Lord, to to walk away from the riches of heaven and to be born on planet earth in poverty, we'll just never understand how humble Jesus really was. But it's interesting, this word that Paul uses, to cling to, He he didn't grasp at it, he didn't cling to it. Because in the cast of characters, there is one person who views equality with God as something to, to grasp at and to cling toward. And, and he, in fact, he lords himself over other beings and, and, and he, he scrambles to get other people to laud him and to follow him. And do you know who I'm talking about? It's the enemy of God. It's Satan. Satan. This is the sin of pride that got him kicked out of heaven in the first place. He wanted to be worshipped as God. He wanted to be co-equal with God. He wanted to be the Lord over all of heaven. And and so that's what he was clinging to. That's what he was scrambling toward. And I just want to say this because I I know, just in a moment of humble authenticity here, I know pride is something that jumps into my own life. I, I have a feeling it jumps into all of our lives in some way, shape, or form in some places. And I want to tell you that if you do wrestle with pride occasionally, the first thing you need to know is it's perfectly natural for you to wrestle with pride as a member of of this fallen planet, right? This this human race that's totally fallen. Like, it's normal for us to wrestle with pride. But when you find yourself being proud, you need to remind yourself whose company you're in. Because when we are proud, and when we are arrogant, when we puff ourselves up, when we lord authority or we lord, uh, you know, privilege or even knowledge over other people, whose company we're in is Satan's. And You don't want to be in his company. Paul's saying, "No, be humble. Have the same attitude of Christ. Be in his company. Right, far better company to be in." So that's the comparison here. He's saying he 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 was this incredibly humble reality as he gave up his divine privileges. Verse 7, it says, and he took the humble position of a slave, a servant. Remember what Jesus himself said. I did not come to be served, but I came to serve and to give my life as a ransom for many. At Overlake, that's where the third purpose of our church comes from. The first is love God, then love people, then serve the world. And it's Jesus we're following as we seek to serve because that's what he came to do. Verse 8. He humbled himself even to obedience to God, right? Consistently, Jesus said, Father, you know best. Father, I will trust you even when it's hard, even when it involves suffering. And in the scripture, Jesus says, I did all that the Father told me to do. I said all that the Father gave me to say. So he was just incredibly obedient, consistently obedient to to his Father. And then it says, and he humbled himself even to death on a cross. A death that was horrific. A death that was shameful. And he did it because he was paying the penalty for the horror of my sin. And the shame of my sin. And your sin as well. So he, he humbled himself so incredibly. Incredibly to obedience. He left heaven and he humbled himself to be be born as a human being. He humbled himself to obedience to God. He humbled himself to death on a cross. Incredibly humble, None more humble than Jesus. And Paul says, your attitude should be like his. And then Paul says in verse 9, therefore God elevated him. All authority on heaven and earth has been granted to Jesus. His is the highest position. His is the name above all names. Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 through 3, if you want to read, has an incredibly similar Christological passage which talks about the elevation of the name of Jesus. Verse 10, that at the name of Jesus every knee shall bow and every tongue confess that jesus christ is lord Yes, c.s lewis has written that this is the universal future for all of humanity that that scene that the apostle paul paints that scene that in heaven and on earth and under the earth you just imagine all of the heavenly beings you can imagine, all of the humans who have ever lived, you can imagine, all of the the servants of the enemy, that, that no matter when we live, no matter where we live, no matter you know what the circumstances of our lifespan were, that there will be this picture. I don't even know where we're all going to stand. We're maybe Texas, and and just spread out as far as the eye can see. And in that moment, every knee will bow, and every tongue will confess Jesus Christ is Lord. Now, C.S. Lewis writes, some of those knees will be bent forcefully. Some of those people bowing will be resisting the bow the entire time. Some of those people confessing that Jesus Christ is Lord have spent their whole lives denying that Jesus Christ is Lord. And so even as they confess it, it will be through clenched teeth. But you and I, we have an opportunity today to bow the knee joyfully. You and I, we have an opportunity right now to confess Jesus Christ is Lord with incredible joy to spend our lifetimes practicing that reality, that we spend our whole lives living in such a way that our lives are consistently bowing the lordship before the lordship of Jesus. Our lives are consistently professing the lordship of Jesus Christ so that when that moment comes, we will do it with great joy. We'll do it in the unity of all of the saints. We'll do it with praise on our lips, ready to be ushered in to eternity with him. That's a beautiful beautiful picture. Can I get an amen for that? Yeah, that's a great, great moment. Okay, now last thing I want to say about this this mention of humility is that virtually every interaction you have with another human being is an opportunity to practice humility. Every single conversation, every email you respond to, Every time you're waiting in line at the grocery store or the coffee shop or the Home Depot, what, wherever it is, anytime you've got another interaction with another human being, even as you're driving and you catch eye with the other driver, like every single time, it's an opportunity to practice humility or not. And so the challenge is that we would recognize, okay, this is an opportunity for me to be humble, to have the attitude of Christ, to be in his company. I don't want to be in that other guy's company. I want to be in Christ's company. Then in verse 12, Paul writes, dear friends, you have always followed my instructions when I was with you. And now that I am away, it's even more important. In other words, I'm not right with you to, to make sure you're doing this stuff. So it's really important that you follow through here. Then he says, work hard to show the results of your salvation, obeying God with deep reverence and fear. For God is working in you, giving you the desire and the power to do what pleases him. Okay, so right away, Paul's talking about obedience. He's saying our obedience is important. Keep on pressing on. Keep doing it. You can do it. And the attitude required here, the attitude check is that we would have hearts filled with reverence. That we would have reverence when it comes to the Lord. That 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 we would take it seriously. That there would be this this um, sense of of gravity and and uh, I don't even that that we would willingly place ourselves in in this position of being reverent and being in awe of God. And if we are able to have this attitude of reverence, then it really does change what obedience is all about. Instead of have to, I have to obey God, I have to do what he says, it's now suddenly I get to. I'm invited to, I can't believe I, I, I get this privilege of obeying God. And I was trying to think, my, our creative team, we kinda got together, how can we really help our minds get into this new position of reverence, this excitement about obeying the Lord and, And and for whatever reason, this analogy works. It's not a perfect analogy, but it works for me. And it's this. If I'm driving my car down the road, and I see Russell Wilson's car is broken down, and he's flagging me down, I'll stop. And I'll do whatever he asks me to do in that moment, regardless of what it costs me. He's like, Mike, my car broke down. Where do you need to go, Russell? I need to go to Miami. Get in, and I'll drive him. Like, no problem. It's on me. I'll, I'll pay for gas. Like, no problem. It's a get-to. It's an I'm excited about it. It's a, I couldn't. I can't believe I have the opportunity to spend time with him. If, I, if I'm hiking up, you know, Rattlesnake Ridge, or I'm hiking up Mount Sire, or something like that, and, and I see Bono rubbing blisters on his feet, and he says, I need... A piggyback down the mountain I'm like get on and I'd do it with joy I, I you know come on I, because of how much excitement I would have just to spend the time together it would not be a burden I mean he's a small Irishman anyway I, <laughs> but how is it that it, in some scenarios it's no problem to serve it's no problem to get into that place of, of humility and, and, and that posture of obedience. How come we can't be like that with the Lord? He's so good to us. He's so loving. He has so much grace for us. And, and the things that he asks us to do, we know they're for our best. And they're also going to impact his kingdom. So that, that idea of reverence, that, that we would be in awe of the opportunity to spend that time with the Lord, to honor him and bring him glory by being obedient. And then uh, Paul says, there are two realities here. He says, it's going to take some hard work. My friend Jenny was telling me a story about when she was young, she used to look at her dad mowing the lawn, and she used to think, I can't wait until I am big enough to where I can mow the lawn on my own. And so he, he knew that she was interested in that, and, and so he would kind of model for her. He'd, he'd let her get up and hold the thing, and he'd kind of push it around and show her how to mow the lawn. The whole time, she's just, I can't wait till I can do this on my own. And, and finally, she's big enough, and so he starts the mower for her, and, and she takes off, and she says, I was thrilled to be able to mow the lawn Twice. She said, by the fifth time, I was like, I hate this lawn. I, can't, I want rocks. Get this lawn out of here, you know. And, and it brings up this thing that the, the, the idea of obedience, it's going to require hard work. It's going to require some work. And so here's what Paul says. He said two, two different concepts. One is that we're to work hard. We're, in fact, some of the scripture says, work out your salvation with fear and trembling." We're to work out, work hard at showing that we are, in fact, saved. You notice that Paul never writes, never, it's not found in the New Testament, it's not found anywhere in scripture, that we work to earn our salvation, you'll never find it, because we don't. You and I, we cannot work to earn our salvation. We can only receive our salvation as a gift. It's a gift from Jesus himself. It's a gift from our our humble Savior. And he's the one who went to the cross providing salvation for us. And so we receive it by faith. We receive it as a gift. It's just grace offered to us. But Paul says once you've received your salvation, now work hard to show that you are saved. Now there is effort that you put in. The effort is to apply that salvation to every area of your life. So yeah, you're going to work this thing out. The same phrase, work out your salvation, it's like a trainer might say to you at the gym. You're to work out your body. A trainer would never say, you're to work hard to get a body. No, you have a body. Now you're to work out your body. So you have salvation. It's been given to you as a gift. Now you're to work it out. Okay. Then he says, and this is the area of gravity right here. This is where we take it seriously. So work it out with fear and trembling. Work it out with deep reverence and fear. We're, we're, we're to work out our, our salvation here. And I think what Paul's really getting at is he's challenging us not to take our salvation or our faith lightly. We're not to take it lightly at all. That We're to have this deep reverence and fear. And I was trying to picture when we do finally stand in the presence of God most high, when we are standing finally face to face with our Lord and our awesome Savior, Jesus himself, when we finally understand the full depths of his grace and we see clearly the full measure of humility as he's chosen to serve us, you can imagine that we'll be trembling in that moment. We'll be trembling because we'll actually be appropriately grateful for the first time We'll be trembling because we we see the awesomeness of God and how in his incredible majesty he's chosen to include us. And we will see the utter depth of the lack of self-sufficiency that we truly have. We are not sufficient at all on our own. And we're utterly dependent upon God. And in that moment we will be trembling and there will be fear. There will also be love and grace. So that's that point. He says work out, right, work hard, work to show And then he gives us the reminder, same reminder he did in chapter one, if you were here last week, that the heavy lifting really is being done by the Lord himself. That yes, we're to work hard, yes, we're to put effort into it, but the heavy lifting is being done by God in our spiritual lives. He says, God is working in you. God is working in you, giving you the desire to do what pleases him and the power to do it. So if you have even the desire to honor God, if you even have the desire at all to bring him glory, you have the desire within you to live well and to make a difference in another person's life, even that desire, that's evidence that God is at work in your life. Right? Even if you can't pull it off, but all you have is the desire to give God glory, that's that's a recognition. You should recognize, no, God is at work in me because that's what I want to do. And then he says, and he gives us the power to do it, which is another great reminder of how we are to be humble because he's saying, look, you saints in Philippi, some of you are hitting it out of the park. And you're doing great, and, and they're, they're making statues. You know, there's, there's a statue to Saint, you know, Tom, and there's a statue over there to Saint, you know, M- Ruby. And, and, and all, you know, all the, the great saints that are doing all these great things, and they're feeding all these homeless people, and they're caring for all these people on the margins they are doing great stuff. Everybody's applauding you. And, and he says, look, you can't do anything. The desire comes from God, and the power to do it also comes from God. So you can't own it on yourself. That can't be an opportunity for you to puff yourself up. No, no, you're totally dependent upon God's work. Remember, he's the one who does the heavy lifting. All right, then he continues, and this is in verse 14. Do everything without complaining and arguing so that no one can criticize you. Live clean, innocent lives as children of God, shining like bright lights in a world full of crooked and perverse people. Hold firmly to the word of life, then, on, or excuse me. Then, on the day of Christ's return, I will be proud that I did not run the race in vain and that my work was not useless. But I will rejoice even if I lose my life, pouring it out like a liquid offering to God, just like your faithful service is an offering to God. And I want all of you to share that joy. Yes, you should rejoice, and I will share your joy. So if you look at that passage, the only way to live this passage out until the day of Christ's return, that's what Paul's urging them, urging us, that we're to, to live in this faithfulness until Christ returns. The only way that's possible is with a heavy commitment to the Lord. And so that's this next attitude check here the attitude check of my commitment to Jesus. Where is my commitment? Where is your commitment level to Jesus? And of course, the most com- committed won't complain, they don't give up, they don't wander off course. It's a great litmus test of your level of commitment is your level of complaining. No complaining, no arguing. That's what Paul says. And in this phrase, more than any other phrase, I think Paul sounds like a parent. How many of you have kids? Any, raise your hand if you're a parent here today. Okay. Uh, raise your hand if you have ever assigned chores for your children to do. Anybody give your kids chores to do? Raise your hand if they have ever complained about the chores you've given them, yeah. And that is just, you're like, look, I just wanted you to clean the bathroom. I did not need the muttering under your breath, right? It was a five-minute job. You took 45 minutes to do it. It didn't even matter what your brother was doing. I gave him the bedroom to clean up. He could do the bedroom without your supervision over him, like, I don't want this complaining, this arguing. I just wanted you to do what I told you to do. And and, and so in that way, I think Paul is, you know, he's speaking our language, right? He said, oh, yeah, this idea of, of doing what it is that God wants us to do. We don't need to complain. We don't need to argue. We don't need to grumble. It's not muttering under our breath. Why? Because we're committed. We're in. This is a joyful thing for us to be a part of. And then he says, you're to live clean, innocent lives as children of God, shining like bright lights. Many of your translations say, shining as stars. And and then the picture, really, that you get is this picture that, yes, the world is dark. But the darker the world is, the brighter you shine. I don't know if you've ever been out in the desert, or maybe over in eastern Washington... You're camping out and there's no moon and there's no town for miles and miles around. And and you see stars on a clear night, an infinite number. Paul's saying, you're you're like that. You're to shine brightly. Yeah, it's a crooked and perverse generation, but you're going to shine all the more brightly because of that. And then he says, hold firmly to the word of life. What's interesting about that is... It can be translated "hold forth" or "hold fast," and and again, I think it's a reference to that that picture of a stars. What does a star do? A star holds fast. In other words, a star knows its position; it's not going to be moved. And a star holds forth its light; it shines out its brightness, and that's that's what he's urging us to do, that we're to, we're to hold firmly and, and hold forth and hold fast this word of life. What's the word of life? If in your Bibles you just want to write, it's the gospel. It's the gospel. And the gospel, we've referenced it several times already today, the gospel is you don't earn your salvation, but God loves you so much that he's offered it to you freely. And all you do is receive it by faith, you put your trust in Jesus Christ, you just cover your life in his grace, and then you joyfully follow him. That's it. You, you receive it by grace. You cannot earn it, you just receive it joyfully so. That's the word of life, and that's what we're to hold forth and hold fast as we shine as bright lights in a dark world. And Paul says, if you hold this word of life until the day Jesus returns, then he says, I'll be proud of my work. I'll know I, I haven't run the race in vain. I'll, I'll know that the effort that I put forth has not been worthless. And in, in in this phrase, Paul does this a couple other times in his letters. You get the sense that he wrestles, and I know many pastors wrestle. It's a question I've asked from time to time, and that's this: Is anything I'm doing does it really matter? As I'm pouring my life out and I'm, I'm trying to, 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 as much as I can, as much as I can pour energy and effort and passion to compel toward transformation and to get people to step into this grace and this love of Jesus Christ, does it matter? Is it working? Is, is what Paul's building going to last? It's just that challenge. And of course, it does matter. Of course, the answer to Paul's question is, yeah, it matters. It matters matters greatly. In fact, what, what Paul built has lasted and lasted and lasted, right? Jesus through Paul, of course. But I'm telling you that, that Paul needs to recognize, oh, yeah, no, it mattered. Every investment, every life I invested in, everybody I influenced, that matters in the kingdom of God. And then, just as in chapter 1, Paul references the potential that his life might come to an end. know, he's in prison in Rome. He knows execution is a very real possibility for him. And he says, and even if that happens, even if the worst case scenario happens, he says, I'm going to rejoice. I'll just pour my life out like a drink offering to the Lord, just like your service to Jesus is a beautiful offering presented to him. He says, I'll do this joyfully, and I want you to rejoice with me, and I'm going to share that joy. We're going to be joyful together no matter what. It brings us to this last attitude check, the attitude check of joy. No matter what happens, no matter what the circumstances, no matter what's going on, joy. And joy is this odd thing. It's, it's, it's related to, but in some ways just barely related to, the concept of happiness. Happiness and the pursuit of happiness it has everything to do with the happenings around you. It's very rooted in circumstance. But joy is something different. Joy is consistent. Joy is a choice. Joy is connected to our faith that we have in a God who is able to hold the entire universe in his hands and take care of me along the road. And that joy, again, like we talked about Victor Frankl in that concentration camp, it is available even in the most dire of circumstances, no, no matter what is happening in our lives, and we just heard back from our team serving in Greece right now on the Syrian refugee trail, and as they've reported back to us, they've talked about how overwhelming the work is, how exhausting the work is, how uh, the, the needs just totally outdistance their uh, ability to meet them. There's not a single family, there's not a single person that they interact with on that Syrian refugee trail that is, is not literally there because of crisis. Everyone has stories of family members, friends that were gunned down, that were executed in, in their midst, that they were driven from property, their houses burned, their businesses destroyed. And so crisis is what it compels every single person on that road. And they're just overwhelmed, and yet, in the midst of that feeling exhaustion and overwhelm, they report back with great joy because of conversations they're able to have, because of an openness to the love of God revealed through Jesus Christ. Because even in a moment that's just born out of crisis, there can be a human connection and a love that's communicated, even through a language barrier. No, no, this idea of joy, it's something that's other than happiness, it's not rooted in circumstance. It's, it's just this powerful thing. And, and it's a challenge, isn't it? All these things are challenges. In fact, I, I want to tell you, this is maybe one of the most challenging messages that we've ever done. Kind of gone and each one of these things that we've talked about. I hope you know, I'm preaching to myself today. I, I, need, I need help with all of this stuff. Joy I want to tell you, like, I, I might be the most shallowest, least joyful, like, I'm all about happiness, but when circumstances go wrong, I just go over the edge so fast. I'll just give you a quick, just a real, this is a snapshot as to how shallow your pastor really is, okay? And I've shared this before, but I, I can be at a stop, a stoplight behind another car, and, and everything can be awesome, and, and then the light turns green... And the other car doesn't go. <laughs> and I lose my mind. Like in an instant, I just lose it. I, lose it. I don't even know why. And then somebody in between services came up to me and said, oh, I know why. Uh, why? Because you learned to drive in California. That's why. And it, oh, yeah. that. Thank you. You know. So, no, it's, it's not that Californians know how to drive. That's not it. It's, <laughs> they, it's a whole different crazy down there. We're, Washingtonians are crazy in the sense that you guys, you're like, yield? No, you yield. No, no, you go. No, you go. Yeah, you. It's like in Washington, the speed limit, you don't even want to get five miles under the speed limit. You're like, no, that's too close. I don't want to break it, you know. In California, the speed limit's just sort of a general hazy, as long as you're like within 25, 30 miles of that thing, <laughs> that's fine. I'm telling you, these these challenges, right? The challenge for us that that we would embrace unity, especially when it's hard. The challenge for us to embrace humility, when the last thing you want to do is be humble. The challenge for us to embrace reverence when we're we're not feeling especially in awe of God. The challenge for us to remind ourselves of our commitment to Jesus. The challenge for us to choose joy when we don't feel happy at all, friends. These are challenges. And so we want to suggest this to you. Maybe with this idea of an attitude checklist, maybe you make a checklist. My, my buddy Lee made a checklist this week. He came to our creative meeting. He was kind of laughing about this, this checklist. I'm going to check my attitude. And he said, I just came up with a little checklist. And then he goes, but in all seriousness, I need this checklist on the fridge in my kitchen. Because I need it when, when I'm getting frustrated that my kid's not loading the dishwasher when I ask them to load the dishwasher, I just, I, I look to the lid, oh yeah, I, I need to check a little humility here. I, I need it when I feel like responding to an argument that I'm having with my wife and responding with a, a retort and something sharp and unkind, I need that checklist in front of me. I, I need it when I'm really wrestling with the bills and I'm not feeling like the finances are going to come through and, and I just, and, and just, I don't feel joyful at all. I, I need that checklist. I think maybe you do too. And so here's, here's the bottom line on this. Again, in the midst of an incredibly challenging message, I just want you to understand you're not on this journey alone. That you have arisen a living Savior. God himself dwells within you, and he's the one who gives us the desire to do his will and the power to see it through. So why don't we bow our heads and close our eyes, and let's ask him for his help right now. Jesus, we want to thank you. Thank you that you provide what we need in order for us to do what it is you call us to do. Thank you that, that you are the one who has modeled so clearly this humility that we are challenged toward. And we want our attitude to be the same as yours, but we just confess how far short we fall. So Jesus, would you meet us where we are Would you continue to stir up within us the desire to glorify you, to honor you, to be obedient to you, and would you give us the power then to follow through with it? We ask for your help in all of these attitudes, and we ask that these are attitudes that we would be able to embrace mentally, that we would embrace these feelings, this would be the posture of our life, so that it would be reflected in our behavior. We ask for your help today, in Jesus' name, amen.